Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. As we've been looking at a series which shows the way in which the local assembly, the ecclesia, the church, is simply a place where we come together to practice corporately the Christian life that we walk individually, we ask that we are encouraged, that we are corrected, that we are empowered by our time together today. We pray that as we look at your word and what your word says about preaching and proclaiming the gospel, um, that it would bear fruit, fruit that you have ordained for this time, that you have given the Holy Spirit to your church to use according to your pleasure. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of 2 Timothy. It's kind of in the last uh, fifth of your Bible. I don't know why I said fifth. That's oddly descriptive. It's in the last shorter part of your Bible, um, and we're going to be there today. And as you turn there, I want you to think about if you could get one final word of advice from a person who is significant, perhaps a mentor uh, in your life, what would you expect them to say to you? We see these kind of climactic teaching mentor moments in, in film and in literature all the time where perhaps in their dying breath, the wise sage offers the, the, the sound counsel to endure what's coming or whispered as he begins his own journey to the great beyond. But more than just receiving that counsel and that input, what if that final moment came when it seemed that everything in your world, your career, your family, your comfort was seemingly falling apart. How desperate would you be for that wise individual to come and to give you what you need to endure? What would you expect to happen from that moment of teaching and clarity? Well, for Timothy, the young pastor in the first century church of the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey, This hypothetical was indeed his reality. Timothy, uh, which is who the letter of 2 Timothy, we get really creative with our Bible book titles, is who, who it was written to. And he was in a city where cultural and political influence, much like our today, seemed to be the biggest, most powerful influences, which made the influence of the gospel and of Christianity seem perhaps insignificant or not helpful at all. In his congregation, there was tension of racism already brewing beneath the surface between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were false teachers calling his own church members into myths, fables, and cults. There was the nagging issue of his youth and inexperience in his ministry. And on top of all of that, his mentor, his spiritual father, the apostle Paul, was in prison nearing his own death. An account of Paul's imprisonment, other peers of Timothy, other ministers of the gospel were leaving the faith altogether because of the difficulty of shepherding God's church. In the book of 2 Timothy, we have Paul's letter. We have that conversation, that mentor moment when his young protege, Timothy, might have felt that everything in the world was going wrong. And Paul's charge to Timothy, his concluding piece of advice, was rooted in what Timothy himself had already experienced. And that is this, Paul comes to say, Timothy, when the world shakes, when fear rises, when pain ensues, when confusion clouds, preach the word. The preaching of God's word was prescribed not only for Timothy's own endurance, but for the endurance of the church that was under Timothy's care in Ephesus. Paul's charge for Timothy in the face of uncertainty was believe the word, preach the word, and trust the Lord. For many of us, perhaps less who are coming here today where we have a culture of preaching, this might be unpopular to you. The idea of preaching from God's word might seem a bit outdated. It is heralding what is a book that was really concluded 2,000 years ago. It's not hot, fresh off the press. It's not clickbait material. 
Or perhaps your experience with preaching might be that it's too academic, too theological, too clumsy, too laborious. But our presuppositions towards it and our experience of it doesn't change what the Bible says about preaching. And in fact, it's in the face of many of these challenges and doubts that Paul actually says to Timothy, preach the word. And what we see broadly in our passage today, if you look, we're kind of straddling the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, there's two perspectives. And in the end of chapter three, Paul is calling Timothy to look back and to remember the teaching that endured him up until that point. And in the first five verses of chapter four, he's now turning the perspective forward and to say, in light of that encouragement, now you, Timothy, turn to the task at hand of shepherding by preaching the word. And as we've been working through our series of uh, why we do what we do as the church and walking through every aspect of what we do, we conclude that next week, we today are going to answer the question of why we preach. Why are we here? Why are you listening right now? And we're going to find one answer in this today, and that is this. We preach to get the word of God and the work of God into the people of God for the joy of God. We preach to get the word of God and the work of God into the people of God for the joy of God. And we're going to see this in largely three ways today. First, we're going to see that preaching and teaching scripture is the foundation of the church. We'll see that in the last part of 2 Timothy 3. Then we'll see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, that preaching is what sustains or serves and sustains the church. Then lastly, in verse five, we'll see that preaching is what serves and saves the lost. And when you think about preaching, you might think about preaching in the sense of what I'm doing right now, this strict, narrow heralding of God's word amidst a gathered body on a Sunday. And while this public preaching is the center of the early church that we see in Acts, it's the center of the text that we are going to look at today, Paul starts not with the exclusive act of preaching in a capital P pulpit sense, But he actually begins at the end of chapter three in talking about teaching on a broader level. He points to the ecosystem of teaching which shapes the church in various ways. And this is our first point today that preaching and teaching scripture is the foundation of the church. We read this in 2 Timothy 3 verses 10 through 17. You, however, have followed my teachings. This is Paul writing to Timothy. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving And being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so in the midst of this painful season of tumult in Timothy's life, Paul comes and reminds Timothy of how he got there, what has endured him so far. It's as if he seeks to say, but look at what God has done to save you up until this point. And we need this because have you ever noticed that the most common response we have when things become hard is to assume that something is wrong, right? You have a bad day at work and you begin to go home and you drive home thinking, am I in the wrong line of work? Am I in the wrong job? You have a rough day of parenting or studying or taking a test at school and you think, well, Perhaps I don't know enough. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe everything I've learned and done is wrong in a massive failure. But what we see clearly in 2 Timothy is that the life of the Christian in Ephesus was becoming increasingly hard. 
culture was making it more and more difficult for Christians to walk in faithful obedience and holiness to Jesus. The church was being mocked, made fun of for its silly teachings and those weak apostles like Paul who have been thrown in prison for their doctrine. False teachers were cutting and pasting parts of the Bible, creating this sort of greatest hits Christianity that sounded really good, but it had no Christ in it. It was a Christless Christianity and it got rid of any of the parts that called us to faithful living and hardship. For Timothy and for ourselves, when we encounter that hardship, it's often easy to say and question in ourselves, is what I've been doing wrong? Is this the problem? Is good teaching, sound theology, holy living, is that the problem? Do I need to get rid of those things? Are those what's causing me the pain? Wouldn't it be so much easier, we'd think, if we could just cave, change the difficulties by changing the principles? But this is where Paul interrupts Timothy's thought, and he says, look at how that doctrine, look at how that holy living, look at how that grace of Scripture taught to you has endured you so far. Paul first reminds Timothy of Paul's own influence in Timothy's life, this teaching that Paul gave to him. And he begins in verse 10 where we see that. And perhaps you've heard this common phrase, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And that statement is both true and false. It's true in the regards here that we see Paul imparting a life of teaching. Did you see all the things that Paul shared with Timothy? He shared all of his life. We see, we shared his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, and even his persecution. The life of Paul was opened to Timothy and it instructed him. You see, as Christians, the whole of our life is meant to leak the gospel everywhere we go. In fact, how many of us are actually unaware that the lives we live daily are aspects of our teaching ministry? It gives away what we believe to those who see it. And yet, these postures that follow in verse 10 are all subordinate to the first thing Paul shares. If you look at that, the very first thing that Paul shares with Timothy is what? His teaching. It is the words, the necessary words of Paul, which open the floodgate of the rest of the teaching that Paul will give with the whole of his life. It is as if Paul's teaching explained his life and his life explained his teaching. And Paul is calling Timothy to all of this, both what was shared in words and modeled in life. And he says he knows that these evil teachers, these deceivers that he's mentioning are offering something attractive. That's why people are going to it. They're not selling kale. They're selling junk food. But Paul says, but look at what I've shared with you. My life was laid open before you for your good. And it wasn't simply Paul who participated in this ecosystem of training Timothy. Look at verses 14 and 15. But as for you, so this is in contrast to being deceived, don't be deceived, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. I'm reading way past what was on the screen, sorry. Uh, That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So here we see here, Paul is calling Timothy to think broadly about those who have helped train him. But I want to pause for a moment and point out, if you look back at verse 14, what he says, he says, but as for you, remember what you have learned and firmly believed. There is a difference between learning about the Christian faith and hearing the gospel and firmly believing the Christian faith and believing the gospel. One thing requires something to be clinched only through the work of the mind, but the other requires a surrender of the whole heart to Jesus Christ. 
as we discuss preaching and teaching, it's easy for us to see it as a checkbox. I have learned, I have known, therefore I am. And yet, we must not be unaware that truths which pierce our mind but fail to grasp our heart are of little value. And sometimes this piercing and this submission happens instantaneously. I know a brother in this church who went to a church service as a conscious non-Christian. And yet the gospel was proclaimed and apart from any will of his own, the Holy Spirit grabbed his heart, gave him faith, and he became a Christian that day. It was instantaneous of learning and firmly believing. But for others... The process of learning and believing happens over time, and ideally that process of teaching and fighting for belief happens in the context of the church. This is how Timothy himself grew, isn't it? Don't we see Paul doing this when he says, remember from whom you learned these things, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. If you have an ESV text, which is what we're preaching out of today, you'll notice there's a little footnote next to remember uh, from whom you learned it. And it says, the translators gave you a little hint. It says the word for whom is plural, meaning he's not just pointing back to himself. He's actually trying to encourage Timothy by calling him to look at the broader way in which other people have invested and taught him the faith. He's perhaps intentionally thinking of two faithful women in Timothy's life, two women that we would have met if we started reading in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am now sure dwells in you as well. There was this legacy of teaching Timothy. In school, my daughter, as I think is a a rite of passage in every American school, hatches chicks. I think it's the greatest farm ag program there's ever been. And what happens is they get these eggs and they take them into the classroom and they put them in this incubator. And the incubator keeps the temperature and the humidity at just the perfect level so these chicks grow and hatch and live as nature intended them to. The teaching of the gospel in the context of the church with men like Paul and grandmas like Lois and moms like Eunice, is the incubator which grows the Christian. It is what provides for them the nourishment and context they need in all of life. This includes preaching, what we're doing right now. It includes Bible study. It includes one-on-one discipleship. It includes Bible memory with kids in your community group. It includes passing along a psalm that was encouraging to you, to a brother or sister who you know in your community group was struggling this week. And this teaching, this ecosystem of reminding each other of what we believe and how firmly we believe it is how God endures people like you and me, and it's what endured Timothy up until this point. This teaching, this community of being preoccupied with the truths of scripture is essential to the life of the church. When we were in Acts 2, earlier on in this series, we saw that part of what the church did is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But why? Why do we care so much about what Paul calls in here the sacred writings or scripture, both of which are synonymous with what we call the Bible, these 66 books that God has given to us? Well, firstly, it's because God's word is what secures us. When we read this passage as a whole, what we see is the overwhelming power of God's word. Christians teach, why? Because we've got something to say. We've got something to give away. Look again at the central role God's word plays in verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
the word of God, scripture is breathed out by God. It is the living breath of the Lord for us to encounter. And it is profitable for many things. In a world that's concerned about our economy, we know the idea of profit because all of us want to know when the stock market is down and you all lost fortunes in Bitcoin, we are asking what is profitable? God's word is profitable. Profitable to produce many, many things. And it's that as he learns God's word from different people in different ways, as it is taught in the context of the church, he has encountered the profitable power of God which solidifies, completes, equips, comforts, rebukes, challenges, and encourages him. The power of scripture, the sufficiency of God's word stands at the center of all of the church's discipleship, evangelism, and preaching. We see three ways in this text that God's word serves us as we grow in it. First, we see in verse uh, 13 that God's word saves us from going from bad to worse. I don't know if you guys caught what Paul snuck in at the end of what he's shared with you. Right now, we're in a church where we just like to share diseases with one another. And we see this happen. Paul's like, I shared my life. I shared my aim. I shared my love. I shared my steadfastness. I shared my persecutions. And just kept going like we didn't catch what he said. (laughs) But what's interesting is in saying, you... Timothy, who shared in my persecutions at these three places, what you also saw, what I also shared with you was the God who delivered us from them all. Yes, we shared in persecution. We shared in affliction. But what also did we share? God's faithfulness to deliver. And it's right after he talks about that in verse 12 that in verse 13, he goes on to warn of false teachers who go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And the contrast that Paul gives here is one that should not be lost on us today. And that is that Paul wants Timothy to be more concerned about falling into false doctrine than he is falling into persecution. God delivers the persecuted church. But how dangerous is it to be one who walks far from scripture when whom apart from God's grace they will be led away from their salvation. All who suffer will be delivered, ultimately resurrected even in their death. But all who are deceived away from the truth of scripture go from bad to worse. You might think that to give away your doctrine that the world opposes, you are finding relief, but it gets worse. For now you suffer at whatever is new and whatever is trendy, and you must cater again and again and again and again until you have surrendered all that saves. This teaching of scripture in the church reminds us where safety is in the confines of God's word. Scripture not only saves us from false doctrines, but we see in verse 15 that scripture saves us eternally by giving us the knowledge of God, by making us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture exclusively presents to us what you need to know to be saved. We live in Missoula. We live in Montana. We live in a place where if you look at Psalm 19, the skies proclaim the glory of God. We can sense in our souls that there is something big, something beautiful, and we can learn a lot from nature. We can learn our smallness. We can learn our limitations. But what you cannot learn from scripture is the truths that you are a broken sinner and that God has sent his perfect son born of a virgin in the flesh to live a perfect life that you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserve, and to offer you eternal life through faith and repentance. Scripture alone teaches that. Old faithful can't. National parks are good, God's word is better. And it's scripture alone, the word of God, that gets the work of God into our hearts. This is where we are reminded of what God has done and is promising to do through Jesus for the good of his church. Scripture shows us salvation in Jesus Christ. But thirdly, Scripture not only saves us, it equips us. Speaking here to a shaken Timothy, Paul says that this powerful, God-breathed word of Scripture will give you everything you need to endure when things are difficult. Speaking specifically to an elder, 
that our elders want to understand is in the face of uncertainty, God has given us what we need to know to endure ourselves and to care for the people whom God has entrusted to us. And so what might it look like for you to participate in this culture of teaching in this church? Part of Timothy's comfort was to look back and to see those who faithfully served him by teaching him. At our community group this week, we opened up by asking individuals, who was it? Who are some significant individuals who influenced your walk with Jesus? And I heard everything from professors to teachers to parents to preachers on podcasts. How good it is that the Christian church understands its teaching role. And you should be encouraged by that. That this is what has sustained them through the ages. But more than that, I want you to look and be encouraged. But I also want you to say, how might you participate in that yourself? How might you be one, a Lois or a Eunice or a Paul who teaches both by sharing their faith and also by modeling their life? Perhaps that looks like you parents, starting with your kids, of actually considering where is it where teaching is not just done by showing my life, but where is it that we are talking and teaching spiritual things? The church should do that, but the church should be doing that as a response to what is being done throughout the week. Maybe that looks like you looking here in this church And you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you see someone who you know hasn't been walking with Jesus that long and you say, I wanna take you out to dinner and I wanna see how your walk with Jesus is doing. Or perhaps it looks like you knowing that you're the young believer and you can go to anyone in here and you could say, can I take you out? Can I buy you lunch? And can you share me, share with me, not share me at lunch, that's weird, that's cannibalistic. Uh, But can you share with me how Jesus has become beautiful and faithful in your life, because I don't know what that looks like right now. And all of that takes nothing to do besides looking at what God has done to sustain Timothy and saying, I can participate in that, and I can be blessed by that. And it's in light of this community of teaching the power of God's word. That's the source of everything. You, feel, you might feel like you have nothing to share, but if you have God's word, you have the world to share with those around you. It's in light of this community of teaching that he now turns to Timothy, not in order to look back, but to look forward. And we read this rousing call to Timothy in chapter four, verses one through four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itchy ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So here we see our second point this morning, and that is that preaching serves and sustains the church. So here Paul begins to narrow that broader field of teaching, that word he uses, didasco. He narrows it and begins to talk in the sense of a new word. That word is to preach. It's a different word he uses in 310. It's a different word than he uses in 4 verse 3. And this command to preach came with a weighty imperative. Did you notice that? Paul opens this command by saying, I charge you. It is a legal term that says, I testify against you. It's as if Paul is calling Timothy to the stand in a courtroom and reminding Timothy of the law which he is indebted to. And Paul makes it clear that this is not Paul's prerogative. He is saying, I'm standing here in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus This charge is not from Paul. This charge issues from the divine will of the triune God that bears all the power and certainty of Christ who is coming to judge and the kingdom which is to come. This is important for us to see because Paul does not charge Timothy to preach because this was the cornerstone of Paul's pragmatic idea for church growth. This call to preach came from the divine will of God because it's what the church needed It's what God gave to the church for its own good. We see this in every aspect of the history of God's people. In the Old Testament, when God called his prophets to go call his faithless people back, he charged them to preach against the idolatrous nation. We see that in Ezekiel 20 and 21. 
Look at the language Jesus himself said. If you had to define what Jesus' ministry was to do, would you describe it as Jesus does? In verse 43 of Luke chapter four, a text we'll look at in a few months. But he said to them, that's Jesus saying to his disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came, the crowds were trying to get him to stay and be the magician who's healing people and doing cool tricks. And Jesus defines his ministry of preaching the good news of the kingdom. But this ministry was not exclusive to Jesus for Jesus commissioned his apostles to the ministry of preaching. Look at how Paul or Peter defines this, speaking of his encounter with Jesus in Acts 10 verse 42. And he, that's Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. Preaching was not only what Jesus did while he was on earth, it's not only what Jesus gave to the apostles to do in the early church, but here is Paul, an apostle in the church, who is now setting the precedent for the church which would follow in Ephesus, that they too are to be a church called and consumed with the ministry of preaching the word. So, a good question you might want to ask right now is what is preaching and why is it so central? It's not simply that Christians are hot-winded intellectuals who like to hear the sound of their own voice. Um, it's because the nature of the message which saves us is so sweet and so wonderful that yes, at times it can be taught, but it also demands to be proclaimed. It demands to be preached. And there's... there's uh, tension between these two things. And biblically, we see that all preaching teaches, but not all teaching is preaching. Paul makes this really clear, even in the words he's using in this passage, drawing parallels between teaching and, and preaching. The gospel writers make this really clear when they talk about Jesus's ministry, and he was sent to teach and to preach multiple times. It says, and he was teaching and preaching two different words in the synagogues. Paul told Timothy in his first letter, we're in 2 Timothy this morning, he said that all elders are called to teach, but there are some elders who are particularly set apart to teach and to preach. And there are two words in the Greek, in our ESV, which are translated as preaching, and another which is translated simply as proclaiming. And we take the three of these words together, we understand a little bit more of what makes preaching distinct in the role it plays in the church and in the life of the believer. The first word to proclaim is just what it sounds. It's to proclaim, but it demands publicity. It's not something done in private. It's something done in the presence of multiple people. The word for preaching Paul uses here in 2 Timothy, 3, or 2 Timothy 4 comes from the Greek word to herald. It's the act of one who is a herald. And that's not the name of some old guy named Harold. But if you think about, you know, literature or movies based in the medieval times, that's where we understand most clearly what a herald is. They go in the stead of the king to declare the message of the king. They speak with authority, but it's a borrowed authority. It's not the herald that is king, but it's the herald who carries the king's message and declares it to someone. Meaning that this heralding that he is talking about, this heralding, this preaching of the word is not a discussion. Though discussions exist in the Christian faith. This comes as a declaration, as a message from the king. The other word that's used defines preaching in terms of the contents of the herald's message. This is the word that's translated, we'll see it later on in our sermon in Romans chapter 1 verse 15, as preach the good news or preach the gospel. It's actually a word we've already encountered, if you've been with us, in the gospel of Luke, that the angels used in chapter 2 verse 10 to say to the shepherds, when they say, fear not, for I declare to you good news. This word simply means, I declare to you good news. It means I gospel to you. And so what we see is that preaching, looked at holistically, is generally this public process of declaring a message of the king, but the message at its core is nothing more than the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And in that, he has told us what to preach. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. What is preached in biblical churches is not up for debate. 
if preaching really serves the church to the degree that the Bible says it does, then we must know what we are to preach. I might be able to come in here and engage some of you with my five-point plan for fixing the Tennessee Titans this off-season, but that's not what Paul has in mind, though I could certainly blather for 45 minutes on the issue. In good ways, I could preach to you about how our world is growing increasingly secular and how we should vote in light of that. Or I could preach on significant contributions of Orthodox theologians throughout the ages which defended the faith once delivered that we see in the book of Titus. But that preaching is not specifically what Paul is mentioning here. I could get up and tell you that you should love one another and be kind to one another. But even that is not specifically what Paul is after here. All of those things might show up in a sermon and they certainly should as the text deals with it. But at the heart of any sermon which is meant to serve the church is a sermon which preaches the word. What is the word? It's the whole of scripture given to us by God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, which Paul just referenced. Paul says that, Timothy, you need to do this rightly. We see this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, where he cautions Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, which means to preach means the preacher comes not in authority on his own, but in submission to God's authority. He is subjecting himself to the king of kings. And why do we need God's word preached to us? Why is this so important? Because God's word never changes. Look at how Peter puts this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 23 and 25. Since, or I'm going to start in verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed through the living or not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So what is the word? We'll get to that in a second. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's word that which is preached in the gospel of Jesus Christ and contained in the pages of scripture remains forever. And that is not simply an academic truth. That is the comfort that we need in our anxious world. Our constant connection to news. Perhaps you've been sitting here today and you've already felt your phone vibrating in your pocket with updates from ESPN or your favorite news source. Our connection to news today causes us to fear what is coming and to panic on how we will grapple it and can we even understand what will happen. We might wonder how we're going to fix these issues, how we're to endure, or even how Christians are to respond to it rightly. But look at what Paul assumes in 2 Timothy. Look at verses, chapter four, verses three and four. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Look at what he talks about earlier. So if you just hop over, probably on the other side of your page, in chapter three, verses one through four, he says this. But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But do you see where Paul lands the plane still? Do you see what he's preparing Timothy for? He says, dear Timothy, it's about to get weird. 
There's going to be lots of chaos. There's going to be disorienting events. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be competing voices. There's going to be sin that's called good and good that's called sin. There's going to be pain and heartaches and political turmoil. And so in light of all this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and the coming of his kingdom, preach the word. This is so important because what we might think when we come to God's word is that we are only looking at what has happened in the past. But because this word is breathed out by God, it is also what carries us into the future. We don't need to worry if God is going to be faithful with what is going to come to face the church for God's word never fails the bride of Christ will never be without the wonderful counselor of her husband king through God's word and the faithful act of the church to declare it to wavering hearts. We do not need to worry about God's word becoming irrelevant to the issues of our day because we have not outgrown the wound of sin in the human heart. We need to be preached to because we don't know what we need, but God's word knows exactly what we need. It knows that it's the declaration of the word of God which sometimes rebukes us, sometimes harms us, sometimes builds us up, sometimes tears us down, but it also exhorts and encourages the weak which ultimately gets the word of God to kickstart the work of God in the people of God. To be honest, I have no idea what Missoula will look like in the next five years, let alone 50, but what I do know is that God's word will prepare us for that day by faithfully calling us deeper and deeper into faith and obedience to Jesus. Preaching theologically sound biblical sermons from the word of God gives us the guardrails we need to keep us from wandering off the path from bad to worse. It keeps us from walking away from the gospel by any wave of doctrine or any persecution that comes our way. And this is why we saw earlier in the book of Timothy, if you read it, he says, teach and trust this teaching to other faithful men so that they can participate in this as well. In the building of the church, the preaching of God's word when rightly handled is the hammer which drives the, drives the nail of the wonderful word of God into the structure. It applies different force in different places, in different grooves, in different positions to get the news of Jesus Christ into the joints and grooves of the whole structure. But the wonder of preaching is not the preacher. The power of preaching is not the sermon any more than it is the hammer that holds the house together. It is the nail which remains the nail of God's word is what serves and saves the church for all eternity. We might be built by the sermon, but we are shaped by the word. And one day in God's glorious plan, us silly preachers will step away and the hammer will be laid down. But what will endure is the structure held together by God's promise in scripture for all eternity. An enduring, worship-filled people, shaped, reliant, convicted, and encouraged by a word that comes to us in uncertain times of the certainty of our salvation. Preaching is for the church. It is why Paul says to the Roman body of believers, you've heard the phrase preaching to the choir, as if you're preaching to people who don't need to hear it. There is no one who doesn't need to be preached to. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter one, where I need to just get my Bible open here because I'm all over the place. Romans chapter one, verse 15, when he says this to Christians, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you Christians who are also in Rome. Paul is eager to preach to believers, so we as believers need to be preached to. You, if you are in here today, you need, I need God's word to be declared to me weekly. If you're in here and you're not a believer, this word is also for you. Preaching is essential to the believer, but preaching is also essential to the saving of the lost. Look at where Paul lands this charge to Timothy in verse five. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. 
Part of Timothy's ministry in submission to his call to preach the word is the work of an evangelist. Preaching serves the church by calling it more and more to the word and work of Jesus, which is our final point today. Preaching is what serves and saves the lost. Pulpit preaching, this right here, what I'm doing, what Daniel did last week, what Adam did the week before, what Johnny did the week before, this is part of God's plan for lost people to hear the saving good news of Jesus Christ. Because the heart of all biblical preaching is the announcement of good news. It means that yes, at times it will exhort. Yes, it doesn't seem good at times. But it calls us to what is beautiful. It might seem like bringing your friend to church and listening to a lecture for 45 minutes might be the last thing you want to do in your attempt to share the gospel with them. But it's our goal as elders here at Sovereign Hope that in every sermon we ever preach, you hear all the tones Paul talks about. You hear rebuking, you hear exhorting, but you hear the gospel proclaimed week in and week out. And that is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. It is good news that requires you to grapple with the bad news of your sin and to find that as part of the wonderful story of Jesus's incredible love for sinners. It is Jesus who reconciles us back to God by taking your sin, by taking your death, by taking your shame and dying in your place on a sinner's cross. This is good news, but it is not simply news. It is a message from a king. It is calling you to believe it, to respond to it with faith and repentance. If you come into this kingdom by faith and repentance, you will experience his love and his joy, and you will willingly submit the whole of your life to his kind care. The message of the gospel then is not only what saves you, it is what sustains you for all of life. It is this teaching and firm belief in it that brings Timothy joy in joyless times. It brings him hope when all else seems to be failing. And if you are here today, I want you to know that this message of hope is for you as well. That this is here in this word for your benefit. As you leave here today, I want you to take heart in the truths of scripture. But I also want you to know that scripture has not confined preaching exclusively to men in a pulpit. Paul, when he was dialoguing with some acute philosophical men in a public park in Athens, saw their needs and he began to preach to them. He preached to them in Acts chapter 17 where he says this, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives life to all mankind, or gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. There in a discussion, Paul saw a need and he began to proclaim the gospel. When the early church was scattered, They left their homes because of the persecution at the hands of Saul, who is, by God's grace, Paul, writing to us today in 2 Timothy. What did ordinary Christians like you and me do in their new contexts? Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered, that is those who on account of everything they believed in the gospel, went about preaching the word. What did Jesus commission his disciples to do as his own parting word, his own mentor moment with the church? Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Dear church, as we are shaken by our cultural woes, by our physical weaknesses, by our relational strife, the public preaching of God's word reminds us of our hope that is bigger than us. Through preaching, through teaching, through training, through coffee dates and conversations over your fence, we are called to preach Christ in Christ crucified and in so doing be encouraged that he was crucified for you. And as we call people to the message of Jesus and his grace, what we call them to through faith and repentance and often a life of difficulty and hard things is a call to nothing less than the joy of God himself. Paul having said, Timothy, it's gonna get terrible. Timothy, it's gonna be hard. Endure and preach the word. Look at what Paul says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, hear our strong words from the weakened apostle Paul that anyone who loves Jesus, who hopes with repentant hearts in the day of his return to care for us, here is the promise of a crown of rest and righteousness. Here is full acceptance, not to the changing cultural woes of today, but to the eternal will and pleasure of the king who rules all things. What we preach in the gospel is nothing short of ultimate joy pressed into the hope of our world where our hearts are prone to run to sin, our flesh is weak in affliction, but here, here is hope in Jesus. Here is the message we preach. Here is our weekly reminder of the sufficiency of Christ's work. So dear church, as we put ourselves to the work of preaching and being preached to, fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, from a pulpit across the world, there are men who preach Christ crucified and in that moment, what ought to be on display is not the power of words or the weight of the preacher, but the supremacy of Christ and his desire to save, to endure, and to satisfy. So Lord, I pray that this church is a church shaped by your word. Your word declared weekly in a pulpit by faithful men set apart to do that. A church where the word is taught around dinner tables, and community groups, a word that is applied in the wounds of weakness and affliction and sorrow. Lord, I pray that as we labor, clinging to the word which endured us and the word which will sustain us, that it will cause our hearts to love the appearing of Jesus Christ, to hope in it, and to carry on. We pray this in your name. Amen.